And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. There are a whole bunch of moving parts when you're putting together your financial plan. And one of the problems is that we don't know the future, and so the range of possibilities can be difficult to deal with. And one of the biggest aspects of creating the plan is our expectation for performance, because that has a huge impact on the overall plan. It has an impact on how long we have to work. It has an impact on how much we will be able to spend in retirement and how much we'll be able to leave to others. So our assumptions that we make about the return on our investments are key to our financial future, or at least as part of a plan. And in this podcast, I want to discuss a bunch of important aspects of historical returns because, unfortunately, historical returns are all we have to really use as a basis for what we put in our plan. See, it's one thing to believe that we have no idea what the market's going to do. So whatever assumption that we use is going to be just a a wild guess. On the other hand, I think we can look at the extremities. We we can look at at what's the best case possibility and the worst case uh, thing that might happen to us with these different kinds of investments. And it's unlikely that it makes sense to base our plan on the best historical return. On the other hand, it may be unrealistic in another way to, to assume it's going to be the worst. It's probably something in between. So what follows is what I believe about the asset classes that the academics recommend in building a portfolio. If you haven't heard me say this before, let me say it now. The recommendations of large and small and value and blend and U.S. and international and REITs and and emerging markets, those are not things that I dreamed up or just kind of came across in an article somewhere. This comes from what I consider to be some of the brightest people in our industry and they are the professors, the academic community that are uh, behind dimensional funds. And so I'm going to be drawing information for this podcast out of the database that dimensional funds uses to educate and keep their advisors up to date. And every year, and I, I just got this book, every year I get this book, it's their matrix book, it's 90 pages a very small print data about the returns of all these major asset classes and many others. So this this document, this, this book, allows me to compare years from 1926 to 2017 on some of the major asset classes that they recommend and therefore I recommend In some cases, it's as few as 20 to 30 years. Asset classes that haven't been around forever, uh, like emerging markets. So it is my hope 
that this information will improve your insight to the reasonableness of return expectations. And by the way, as I've said so many times, it's not just about the return, it's about the risk. And in this particular podcast, I'm not going to focus much on the risk so much as just the returns of these asset classes that I've talked so much about. I think one of the most important lessons is that future returns will be, I mean, it's as close to a guarantee as I could say about anything, but that the future returns will be different from the past. Economic factors will change. Uh, The world will change. Politicians will change. What uh, society wants will change. I I just uh, spent some time with my four-year-old grandson earlier today, and I was talking to him about what the world was like when I was his age, and uh, which included, by the way, uh, a, a phone on the wall that that you actually uh, would talk to an operator to have them call somebody else in the in the city that I or the town that I lived in, uh, and he was uh, surprised by some of those stories. But the fact is, is that those things are all from the past. All of those things, the wars, the depression, the good economies and bad economies, etc., all, all of those things led the market to a long-term return of about 10% a year. But during this long period of time, the last approximately 90 years, while the market was going up and down, there were periods that investors were optimistic there were periods that the, the investors were pessimistic. And even those feelings had an impact on the return that investors got. And I think it's quite interesting how we felt about those returns at the time it happened. In, in, in the, the last uh, 20 years, uh, certainly we've had an opportunity to see kind of the best of times and the worst of times for investors in the uh, from 1975 to 99, we had an S&P 500 that compounded at over 17%. We had small cap uh, value that compounded at over 22 And what I find fascinating is after that very long market advance, yes, there were some setbacks along the way, but not the kind of setbacks that we've had uh, during the period since 2000. So, At the end of this 25-year period, when people were asked what they thought the market was going to give to them in the coming decade, the surveys showed that people expected to get 20 to 30% a year, which is, of course, just outrageous. But in that last five-year period from 95 to 99, the market did compound at 20 over 28% a year. I'm talking about the S&P 500. So it's not shocking that people had very high hopes. But of course, we know what happened next, and I'll be talking about uh, how things have performed since 2000. But it turned out to be a totally different world than the 20 to 30%. Instead, since 2000, 2000 through 2017, the return has been 5.4% for the S&P 500. And for the international index that is similar, 
about 4%. So it is difficult to know what future returns are going to be. And it's more than just unemployment and interest rates and, and, and gross national product. There's a human, an emotional aspect to what happens at the pricing of the market. Second lesson I'd like to address is that I am convinced that the premium for stocks over bonds will continue. Uh, I at, the, at this last weekend I did a, uh, uh, a presentation on Como Radio uh, for Tom Cock and Don McDonald, and in that presentation I included a, uh, uh, a a table that I want to share with you. You'll find a link to it in uh, in the description of this podcast. But it's a table devoted to uh, returns for fixed income securities uh, going back to uh, 1926 uh, through 2017. And it, it's the, the table is headed STGB, the column, uh, that short-term government bond. Actually, those are T-bills. And then there's intermediate government bonds. And then there's long-term government bonds. And the, the reason I want people to see this, especially young people, is that I think something like 25% of millennials who are investing in their 401k plans are not putting anything in equities. They're choosing fixed income securities. And if you'll notice in this table, the average 40-year compound rate of return is 44 for the T-bills, 5.7 for the intermediates, and 5.4. Now, by the way, that's the average 40-year return, all 40-year return periods starting in 1926. Um, And and by the way, notice that long-term bonds that are more volatile than international, I mean, sorry, intermediate-term bonds, uh, had a lower return Uh, with the long-term than what the intermediates produced. And that's one of the reasons that we don't go out beyond uh, intermediates in our portfolio. Now, the best 40-year compound rate of return uh, since 1926 for T-bills was 6.1%, and uh, with the uh, intermediates, 8.1%, and and long-term government bonds, 8.9%. Now, that was a pretty amazing time. That happened to be uh, during a period from 1975 to 2014. And that was a period of time. I remember in the early uh, 80s, there was a five-year CD that I got for my IRA that paid 16%. Uh, Interest rates were very high. Inflation was very high. Now, it's also important to note in that table that the worst 40-year return for T-bills was 1.5% a year. For intermediates, it was 2.9, and for long-term, it was 2.2. And by the way, it's also kind of interesting to note that for the intermediates, the worst period was from 1930 to 1969, And for the long term, it was 1941 to 1980. 
So uh, the fixed income did not necessarily experience their worst returns at the same time. And by, I notice also that the, the, the Treasury bills, their worst period was from 1926 to 1965, 1.5%. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, that who knows when that's going to happen again. It's probably going to happen again. And I just would hate to think that young people would have decided that uh, the smart thing to do was to put their money in bonds uh, for the long term. At least historically that has not proven to be the case, but I do think it, 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 it will be like that in the future, that stocks will, in fact, uh, do better than bonds. And just to add one more thing on the bonds, I often complain that uh, uh, it's upsetting to me that target date funds for very young people have 10% committed to bonds. And I just think that's a dirty, rotten shame. Now let's compare those bond returns, the long-term bond returns. Uh, and, and, and you may have noticed that there are also 1 in 15-year uh, periods on that table. But really, for long-term investors, I'm thinking 40 years is a reasonable period of time that we should be thinking now, I'm almost 75, and 40 years is a little ridiculous, but 15 would probably be more appropriate for me. But for this discussion, I want to be looking at the 40-year periods. And I'd like you to look at another table. It's the uh, updated uh, two and four fund uh, table that we've used in the past, and now it's 1928 to 2017. And it shows one 15 and 40 year periods. Again, there's a link to this in the description of the podcast. But it, what we can see here is what we call the market, the S&P 500. If we look at the 40 year period or periods in that part of the table at the bottom of the page, uh, you'll notice that the average 40-year compound rate of return has been 10.9%. Now, I think it's important to note here that does, that does not include the management fee of the S&P 500 index fund. It does not include any taxes, uh, and it assumes that you're putting money in at the first of each year. Uh, it doesn't take into consideration at different times, a person might have put that in. Uh, in fact, it would be more of a lump sum investment uh, outcome. But here's the point. The average compound rate of return was 10.9. Now remember, the returns for the other, the fixed income instruments, were much lower than that. The best 40-year period was a 12.5% return, and the very worst period, 40-year period, was a gain of 8.9% a year. Now, if we look, uh, for example, at uh, in, and compare the stock investments to the bond investments, we know that the stocks are going to end up with more money, but let's, let's just take a look at what the implications would be if over 40 years you put away $1,000 a year and, uh, and you got the worst returns of the bonds. Uh, and that was the 2.9% compound rate of return. 
for the intermediate term government bond. Now, a thousand a year over forty years, uh, that would have turned into about seventy-four thousand dollars, and that was the worst forty-year period. And for the S and P five hundred, the worst was eight point nine percent, or your thousand dollars a year over forty years would have turned into three hundred and twenty-nine. So thousand. So in the in in the bonds, you about doubled the amount of money that you put in, and uh, with the uh, the stocks, you you ended up getting about eight times uh, what you put in. So uh, stocks hit a home run compared certainly to bonds. But that was the worst of years. The best 40-year period for bonds uh, would be the eight intermediates, was an 8.1% compound rate of return, turning the $1,000 a year into $266,000 versus 12.5 for the S&P 500, leaving an investor at the end with $881,000. And before we leave the stock versus bond uh, discussion, I think there's something very important, especially for people who haven't been at this for a long time. We need to have realistic expectations about how often stocks will do better than bonds or that bonds will do better than stocks. And it turns out, going back to the mid-20s, it turns out that stocks beat T-bills when we look one year at a time, 65% of the time. So about two-thirds of the time, one year at a time, stocks do better than bonds. Once we go out to five years, it turns out that 79% of the five-year periods, the stocks did better than T-bills. And when you go out 10 years, most, but not all, of those 10-year periods did the stocks beat T-bills. About 14% of the years, bills were the winners, and 86% stocks were the winners. So uh, it, it is not a miracle if bonds beat stocks, even for 10 or more years. Now let's move on and talk about another uh, comparison. Let's look at small cap versus large cap. Now this is all in the U.S. Again, we've got this data going back to uh, 1926 for some of it, 1928 for others. And here's what we know. That going, looking at the returns for about 90 years, in 57% of the years... Small beats large. Now, that's not a huge advantage. And when we go out to six uh, to uh, five years, 66% of the five-year periods, small beats large. And by the time we get out to 10 years, they're 72% of the 10-year period. So about 25% of the 10-year periods large is expected to be small. And when you have that many 25 of a 10-year periods that large does beat small, you're going to have some periods for 20 years that uh, large beats small. So this is not a slam 
stunk. And what the academics have said motivates me to encourage particularly young people to have a, a good, healthy percentage of a portfolio in, uh, in small-cap companies because that, ad, that, that advantage is not just the fact that, that small beats uh, large in most periods, uh, but also by a fairly healthy uh, uh, difference. And so when you look, for example, at the uh, average 40-year period, for small cap, it's a 13.8% compound rate of return, or the $1,000 a year for 40 years would turn into $1.3 million. Now, the best, the best 40-year period was a 15.6% compound rate of return, or $2.1 million for the $40,000 invested, and the worst 40-year period was 8.8%, and that then turned into about 320000 So legitimately, if somebody put $1,000 away into the small-cap asset class, they would potentially have a huge advantage uh, over the return that would have uh, been made if uh, all the money had been put into the S&P 500 diversification, right? And the other big decision we make is whether we want to add value to the portfolio. And everything that I've learned from the academic community leads me to believe that there is a premium for value, whether we're talking about small companies or large. Uh, For example, if we look at the large blend asset class, We know that from 28 to 2017, it had a 9.9% compound rate of return. On the other hand, large cap value for that same period, 11.3%. If we look at the small companies, small blend, a combination of growth and value, but small blend was 12.2 versus small value of 13.4%. Big premiums for adding value. And what is interesting is that if if we look at the average, let's just look at the average 40-year period, large cap blend of 10.9, that would produce $566,000 for that $1,000 a year over 40 years. If we had large cap value at 13.5, that produces 1.2 million, so about twice that of large cap blend. Small cap blend uh, compounded at 13.8, or that money would have turned into 1.3 million, but if you did small cap value, it was 16.2. That was the average 40-year period and that would have turned the $1,000 a year into $2.5 million, about twice what you would have gotten from small-cap blend. So there is no question that adding value to the portfolio over a, looking over a very long period of time uh, would have been uh, uh, a premium worth taking the, uh, the risk. 
And another lesson that comes out of this information from that table is to look at the impact of combining these four different asset classes, large cap blend, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value, looking from 1928 through 2017, looking at the average 40-year period, combining the four, the best and the worst. Now, here's the average, 13.8%. And if we go back to that assumption that we're going to invest $1,000 a year for 40 years, that would have turned that $40,000 into $1.3 million. If we looked at the best 40 years, uh, that would be 15.9%. Uh, that would turn it into $2.3 million. And the worst 40 years well, would be 10.8% or $550,000. What's interesting to me is that the worst four fund strategy outcome, the worst was 2% better approximately than the worst S&P 500. And that comes with a ton additional uh, diversification. Then the next lesson I think that we have to learn is about the uh, implications, long-term implications of the all-value portfolio and all we did was take out the blend, the large blend and the small blend. So you're left with a portfolio that is 50% in large value, 50% in small value. Now, how did those average best and worst 40-year periods do? Well, it turned out that the average was about 15%. The best was 172 the worst was 10.7. Now, it's interesting that 10.7 is about the worst as the four-fund strategy. Still 2% better than the S&P 500. But the average is about 1.8 million instead of 1.3 million with the four-fund strategy. And the best was 3.3 million compared to 2.3 million for the four-fund strategy. So it is my belief that for folks who have a higher risk tolerance, that looking, particularly young people, the potential uh, premium impact for them uh, could be a, a real life-changer, especially those who are really trying to, uh, uh, to figure out a way to retire uh, earlier. So I have to ask myself, um, and thinking about what to recommend for you, how, how realistic uh, are these returns? Well, let's talk first and make sure that this is very clear, that these returns you see are of the indexes. They do not include any fees, management fees, that you would have in a mutual fund or an ETF, and there are are no taxes involved. And let me remind you that events for the rest of your life, in a sense, will be totally different 
than what's represented by this uh, almost 90-year period. And there's one other aspect of looking backwards like this that's important to uh, take into consideration, and that is that these asset classes were not known to investors. And so the premiums that were achieved over that 90-year period, or most of that 90-year period, came before people understood how these things work. Now, today, we know better how they work. And so people will say, well, that premium isn't there anymore, and, 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 and uh, we should not expect the better returns of the past. And those past returns suggest that, for example, small-cap value um, could produce 4% more per year. That's a big deal. Now, what's interesting is this argument that we can't expect to get the premiums in the future that we got in the past, that argument's been around for 20 years. And uh, this is not all brand new information. This, the whole uh, d discovery, in a sense, of these kinds of dimensions, the, the, the small and the value, the way we know them today, uh, people have been saying that everybody understands this uh, for probably 20 years that, that, and that that premium is not likely to be there. Now, what's interesting to me, and I'm going to talk about the returns from 2000 through 2017 uh, in a minute here, but what interests me is that in that period, the S&P 500 compounded at 5.4%. And small cap value compounded at 11.3, about a 7% premium over that period of time. Now, I'm not suggesting that the premiums are going to be higher in the long run, but I'm still convinced that small cap value, large cap value, will in fact have a premium moving forward. Now, it may be that our problem will be that returns for equities will be lower and that because of that, let's say the S&P compounds at 7, it may be that small cap value will only compound at 10. We, we just don't know. One of the interesting challenges for investors who are going to use index funds is that there are many different indexes being created for example, there's a Russell 2000 growth index and DFA, dimensional funds, they have a way of building uh, a small cap growth index as well. And uh, the compound rate of return from 2000 through 2017 was 5.3 for the Russell small cap 2000 growth index. And it was 9.8 for the DFA. And Russell has a 2,000 stock, small, basically small cap value index, that over that period of time from 2000 to 2017 compounded at 10.1 as compared to the DFA small cap value index of 11.7. So 
there's also going to be some differences in terms of returns based on whose indexes uh, or their ways of creating uh, asset class funds. So most of us, all I don't think any of us lived through the 1926 or, or, or knew about it at the time through 2017. So all of those years of numbers may not mean a whole lot. But we, most of us did live through the 2000 through 2017 market. Now, this is the market that I mentioned earlier, that the S&P 500 compounded at 5.4%. Now, long-term government bonds compounded at 7.3, almost 2% more per year over that period of time. And I'm sure that's not what people would have believed. Starting, remember what people believed about the uh, S and P 500 is it would compound uh, between uh, 20 and 30 percent. And I think it's important to note that inflation was only 2.1 percent, which is about a third lower than uh, the inflation rate has been since 1926. But had you been in uh, REITs, uh, they compounded at 11.4, double the S&P. Emerging markets, depending on whether they were small or value uh, or large, compounded between 9.3 and 11.5. International small cap value uh, compounded at 11.3. Three, remember the uh, the uh, small cap. Maybe I didn't talk about that. The small cap value, U.S. compounded at eleven point seven. International small cap value, I mentioned eleven point three. But compare that to the international small cap growth, seven point nine. In fact, there are a lot of people that believe a peer growth index is not going to do as well in the long term as either a blend of growth and value or value on its own. And there's, there, there's evidence that that is true in the U.S., and there's evidence that that's true internationally. The International Large Cap Growth Index compounded at 3.7, that's the growth index, and the um, the blend, uh, oh, excuse me, the value compounded at 6.8, so uh, almost twice what the growth compounded at internationally. Uh, I notice here the U.S. small cap growth was 9.8, uh, U.S. small cap value 11.7, I mentioned that before. So it does kind of take us to this other important lesson, and that is there are a lot of asset classes that do not have a history of a good unit of return per unit of risk, or there's some other choice that we have that would be a lot better. Over that whole, that whole period from 2000 through 2017, it has always been my belief and the belief of of most of the academic research I've seen, 
that commodities, while they don't go up and down with the stock market, uh, actually are not as productive as simply using uh, U.S. government bonds. Uh, And that would be true of commodities, including gold. Now, the commodity index from 2000 through 2017 compounded at 1.4 and gold compounded at 6%. And remember, the uh, bonds over that same period of time, uh, long-term, let's see, let's get the bonds here, 7.3 for long-term government bonds, 7.9 for long-term corporate. And this is not to say that you shouldn't have gold because it's bad or commodities are bad. Uh, it's really more about, in order to get the best unit of return per unit of risk, it's not good to have these things in your portfolio. Because there's always a reason that people have to, to put something more than what I recommend or what the academics recommend. And certainly, it's not unusual that whatever has been doing well, whether it's healthcare or energy or finance or biotech, if something has been doing well over the recent years, the natural thing for people to believe is it's something you you must have in your portfolio because look at all the money it made. But in most cases, all of those different asset classes are in the large and the small and the growth and the value and the U.S. and the international. I mentioned one last thing. I mentioned it briefly earlier. That's inflation. And I mentioned that uh, over the last 90 years, inflation rate has been around 3%. And uh, that uh, takes the S&P 500 down to a return of 6.7% for the period. Uh, It uh, takes the uh, T-bills down to uh, 0.4 over that period. And if we look at only the period from 2000 to 2017, uh, the T-bills actually lost four-tenths of a percent uh, after inflation. So I hope... Uh, well, there's a lot of rambling going on here and a lot of numbers, uh, overwhelming, I suspect, for some people. But my hope is is that this information helps you uh, get a, a, a better sense of what's realistic. And I guess there's kind of two ways you can address this in terms of planning for the rest of your, of, of your either accumulation period or for the rest of your distribution period. And that is you could use the, uh, the worst 40-year period as your assumption for return. Uh, you could use the average. That seems like it would be a reasonable thing to do. Uh, it certainly would... Uh, would not be to assume the best 40-year performance. That would not make any sense. Or maybe take the average less 1%. This topic of of what rate of return should I assume in my financial plan uh, is huge. If you assume your return is going to be too high, you might find yourself uh, uh, under saving. 
and and so um, if there are any questions that come up through this discussion, um, please feel free to email me, Paul, at paulmerriman.com. And if you have a formula approach to uh, uh, deciding what return to use in your plan, uh, email me and let me know that as well. All the best, and thank you for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.